This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Hey, it's Greg Stanley, and thank you for joining me for this episode of the Collector Car Podcast. This is going to be a little bit of a longer episode, but a really fun episode. Now today I'm, I, I am continuing my deep dive into Jay Leno's collection, and for this episode I am focusing in on his American classics. Now my definition of American classics is a lot different than some of the typical definitions you will see in road rallies and car shows and concours. My definition is basically any collector car in Jay's collection that is American made. So there's no, uh, you know, that's a collector car. So there's no, you know, year cap for the most part it's not like pre-war cars it's not mid 60s or 50s uh, now jay's collection includes a lot of cool of, of american classics per this definition so this would be packards cadillacs duesenbergs he has a chrysler air airflow a studs bearcat uh, many alternative power cars that are really early including a detroit electric double steam cars white steam cars stanley steam cars and many more. Now, I counted 49 American classics in Jay's collection, but I know not everything has been captured on his YouTube channel, so there's probably uh, over 50, I would guess, you know? So we'll find out. There's always a new one that pops up here and there. So um, if you're not watching on YouTube, it's a fun way to check it out because I will have some of his videos uh, streaming in the background as I talk about the cars. Now, uh, one of the one example as far as how I always see new cars in his collection is one of the recent uh, videos he has is for his 2014 Cadillac CTS-V. Uh, that is a beautiful, wonderful car. I did want to talk about that for one second because I had it in my uh, cars you should buy now. I think it's trending higher quickly. It's the one situation where the four-door wagon is worth significantly more than the two-door coupe. And I did, I'm, I'm going to pull out some articles that interest me every once in a while. So uh, there was an article in Sports Car Market, one of my favorite magazines. I'm actually going to reference uh, three or four articles here from them uh, just to share some of the fun stuff I've been reading that aligns with what I've been talking about on the podcast here. So I won't go into detail on this, but they had a nice write-up up about the 2014 Cadillac CTSV wagon as it is a future collectible. And those have gone up in price significantly because there's just so few of them made with a six-speed manual. Uh, my wife and I, we did test drive a 2013 CTS-V Coupe the other day. That was on her bucket list, and this was the V version. It wasn't automatic, but it was the perfect color combo of like a pearl white with tan interior, and the wheels were chrome. I'm still, I like chrome. Uh, I haven't quite embraced the blackout styling like everyone else has. So we took it for a test drive, and now this would have been her daily driver car. And here in Ohio, driving a 500 and whatever, 56 horsepower two-door coupe into in the winter, we decided that wasn't a wise play. So we did not buy that car, but it was a lot of fun to drive it. Uh, I did lay into it a couple times, which was a lot of fun. So um, let's see. Another article I wanted to kind of give a heads up on. This is very interesting. 
the popularity of pre-war cars. And I do believe that as we go more of the electrification route, I think more and more enthusiasts will embrace uh, the cars that are powered by gasoline and go ba way back to the pre-war cars because you can work on them. They're really cool. The whole mechanical engineering aspect of them is right there available for you to see, enjoy, and appreciate. So the, the cool note here, and this is some very interesting Haggerty trend data. Let's see, according to Haggerty, since 2019, the number of millennials insuring pre-war cars grew by 65%, and Generation X grew by 32%. Uh, so that's fascinating. So that does explain some of the interest in the results we've been seeing on these pre-war cars. As I'm recording this, this is I'm recording this on Wednesday. This is a post on Thursday. These two days are the days of the Hershey auction, which is why I am not there today or tomorrow. Uh, so I will review some of those uh, results on those pre-war cars and see how they align with uh, what at least we're seeing from the insurance valuation trends. Another interesting uh, article was the future of the manual market. So uh, this is where readers wrote in. It uh, looked like there were about 13 subscribers that wrote in uh, their opinion on the manual market. You know, how long will these, you know, right now there's a 15 to 20 to 30 percent increase if the car has a five or six speed or even a four speed manual versus the automatic, will that continue? And this surprised me is all the readers that wrote in uh, with the exception of one or two, because there was one, one person that was kind of iffy, uh, said that that market will remain strong uh, for indefinitely. I don't know if that's true or not. I'd like to think it is, but as you have generations of car enthusiasts who have never driven a manual ever, They've always driven automatic cars. I don't know that it will be the allure and the drive uh, that it currently is. Now, there, people think manual is hard. You can learn it in five minutes. I mean, I did when I was 15. So it's it's an easy thing to do. Um, I just, just don't know if that will translate 20 years from now for the manual still having a premium. Or at some point, is the manual seen as a detriment because uh, folks are so used to the automatic? I don't know. I kind of lean that way, but I hope not. That's one of those, I see it this way, but I hope it goes that way. And the last thing I wanted to call out as far as articles and interesting stuff I've been reading lately is I did not know this. I am not a Hot Wheels collector, uh, but there is a pretty cool one that popped up. Uh, so this is a Hot Wheels, I guess in India, they made some Hot Wheels that were different color combinations than you would find in the U.S., and so same car, same mold, same interior, same everything. But the colors are off. And as we know, color drives so much. And this particular one was a 1999 Hot Wheels Ferrari F50 Gray India. Now, what do those little things cost new? Probably like a buck 25, something like that. Maybe two, two bucks. I don't know. I haven't bought a Hot Wheels in 20 years. Uh, so this one sold because it is silver with red interior. This little blister pack sold for just under $15,000. So if you travel to India and you see a bunch of Hot Wheels, just go and buy them all up at one time. I thought that was nuts. All right. I will have some valuation data uh, in this episode as it relates to Jay Leno's American Classics. Now, most of Jay's cars are not specifically stock. And the other thing about what I've picked up from Jay's cars, I cannot always tell via the video the exact model of the car. I'll call these out as we see them. So the Haggerty information, yes, there will be some Haggerty trends at the end. 
That's based on your basic car in the configuration I describe in Haggerty's valuation database. It's not based on Jay's car because, like I said, they're pretty uh, pretty special. Also, the interest, interesting thing about Haggerty's data, if you go into the pre-war cars, there's not a lot of stuff there. Um, now, there's ironically, there's a ton of stuff in there for pre-war motorcycles, but not the pre-war cars. So you might want me to pull out information on, you know, how are the white steam cars trending? Because Jay has seven of them, I think, or five of them. Uh, there's just no data. So the cars that I did pull out are, were the ones I could find that were in Jay's collection, if that makes sense. All right. Like I said, uh, Jay owns actually has five white steam cars. Now, while there isn't any valuation data available, because he had so many, I wanted to give a little overview of these cars. And now this is from whitesteamcar.com. So I think they're the expert in the field. This isn't wikipedia.com. All right. So from whitesteamcar.com. Thomas H. White began manu manufacturing sewing machines in Massachusetts in partnership with William Grout. Following the Civil War, he moved to Cleveland where he established the White Sewing Machine Company and at the turn of the century, his sons, like the Grout brothers in Massachusetts, moved the company into the manufacture of steam cars. The semi-flash boiler invented by Roland White in the late 1890s provided the impetus, though brothers Windsor and Walter were involved in the automaking venture from the beginning. By the spring of 1900, four white, four white steam cars had been built, and the company's first truck followed that year, producing production in 1901 climbed to 193 units. The New York to Buffalo endurance run in 1901, four whites were entered, each of them being awarded first-class certificates. Now, these were all chain-driven, tiller-steered, wire-wheel stanhopes with their two-cylinder engines mounted under the floorboards. The condenser to recycle exhaust steam was added in 1902 and 1903 saw the whites lose its buggy look with the engine now mounted up front under the hood in a touring model and the substitution of wood ar artillery wheels and shaft drive. Let's see, a total of 502 cars were produced in 1903. Uh, 1905, they had a different hood design known as the white curve, which remained a distinguishing feature of the white cars to the end and white trucks into the 1930s. So they did transition out of the car world into the truck world. All right, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. They had a world miles, a world's mile record of 73.75 mile per hour at the Morris Park track in July of 1905. Let's see. That's where it went into national prominence. And let's see. They had sales just over 1,000 in 1905 and 1,500 in 1906. Okay, so let's see. President William Howard Taft established the first official White House automobile fleet in 1909, and a white steam car was introduced into the presidential garage. Other prominent white steam car owners include John D. Rockefeller and Buffalo Bill Cody. Interesting. In January 1911, the last white steam car was built, and in 1918, the White Motor Company ended manufacture of passenger cars to concentrate on the commercial field vehicle. So Jay, I show you, has a 1907, 1908, 1909, 1910, and a 1907 a race about their building, which I saw in one of his restoration videos. Okay. Actually, you know what? I meant to show a little video while we were doing that. So I'm going to have this play. Here we go. I'll have this play as... Uh, there you go. You can see, if you're watching on video, you can see what this white looks like. Uh, this is his 1907 steamer that he's driving. 
and this video is from just about exactly 20 years ago. So Jay's been a YouTuber for a lot longer than just about anybody else. All right, so the next car we're going to talk about is, uh, let's see, his 1955 Roadmaster convertible. So I'm going to transition here. Uh, the video you'll see is from My Classic Car with Dennis Gage, again, from like 20, 30 years ago. And I believe this car that they're showing on the video, Jay's 1955 uh, Roadmaster, is one that he bought, I think it was his first car, and he ended up buying it back or having it forever and then it restored it and hopped it up with the first Chevrolet, uh, I think it was a 572 big block. So the base Buick Roadmaster is the description I'm going to talk about here. And this is from our friends at Haggerty. The Roadmaster was still top of the line for 1954, except of course for the special Skylark convertible, which is now a separate series. All Buicks utilized a complete restyling, including wraparound windshields for the first time. Hoods were now nearly level with the fenders and headlights, giving the cars a much cleaner and more moderate stance, yet the family resemblance was still there in the big grille, massive bumpers, and fender ports. In 1954, Roadmaster was truly the only was only one step below Cadillac. Standard equipment include a Dynaflowic automatic transmission, full-wheel covers, power brakes, power steering, and hydraulic electric power windows, except for the sedan. Let's see. Uh, 1955 Buick sales actually sailed right past Plymouth and was over 33,000 cars in front by the end of the model year's uh, sales tally. All right. Style-wise, the 1955s looked fresh with a new and fine honeycomb grille that featured a big propeller-shaped center trim component. Inside, the Roadmaster gained new standard equipment, including backup lights, clock, windshield washers, full leather upholstery on the convertible. Tritone paint combinations joined the two-tone paint selection on the color palette. So uh, a lot of cool stuff there. Jay's is probably the one that he has the most history with, obviously, in his entire collection, uh, which is really cool. All right, next, we're going to move to the 1936 19 1936 Cord 810-812. Now, this is one where the 810s, I believe, were 1936. 1937s, I believe they were 812s. I did not actually look up to, you know, find out why that number changed by one. Uh, Jay's is listed as a 36, 810, 812. The beautiful baby Duesenberg that never caught on. And uh, so right now in the video, Jay's in his Duesenberg room, which is pretty cool uh, to start off with. But then he moves to... Uh, this cord. So the groundbreaking cord 810 was offered in two sedan models, the Winchester and the upmarket Beverly, uh, different, differentiated by their interiors. The Westchester had flat, broad cloth seats, while the Beverly used pleated cloth. Very early production Beverly's also featured a unique armchair interior arrangement with fixed armrests for the front and rear, while several later Beverly's has been re restored with this desirable and sporting interior. Very few survive that have this arrangement since new. So cool, iconic, very innovative cars. Uh, I believe they were, if not the first, one of the first front-wheel drive cars. Uh, the first with the pop-up headlights, which is pretty cool because you actually have a little handle uh, that you have to spin to roll up the headlights, and you have to reach all the way over to the passenger side or get out and go over to the passenger side and roll those up. So very innovative, very cool. And Jay's is like a dark, dark maroon color. One thing that was pretty cool, I have a client that has one 
And I guess maybe a period modification, since it is a front-wheel drive car, was to uh, put the Oldsmobile Tornado V8 engine into the front. And I have a client that has one that's been hot-rodded that way. And I love that period hot rod. All right, let's see. Next, we have one of my favorite cars. This is a Cunningham, 1953 Cunningham C3. Now, this description is from RM Sotheby's, as was the last one. Uh, we've actually sold a few of these, and I've been fortunate to look at these very closely at some of our auction, uh, some of our auctions. And uh, Jay's is like a dark maroon again with um, kind of a pastel gray on top and a dark gray on the bottom on the sides. Uh, let's see. Briggs Swift Cunningham was a man that with Frederick Nightshall referred to as Will. Briggs had the will to win, constantly striving to best his competition, whether during his extensive yachting career, golfing, playing football, or auto racing. Son of wealthy Cincinnati Cincinnati, Cincinnati financier, financer, can't get that one quite right, and heir to the Swift meatpacking fortune, Cunningham began his career in yacht racing at Yale in the 1920s, which eventually led to international fame by captaining the Columbia to victory in the 1958 Americans Cup. All right, so he's been uh, started off pretty well in life, I'd say. In 1950, Briggs entered two Cadillac Coupe de Vils into the world's most prestigious race, the 24-hour endurance race at Le Mans. One remained nearly stock, and the other was heavily modified. They finished 10th and 11th. Uh, among a sea of Jaguars, Aston Martins, and Ferraris. This early loss only increased Briggs' will to victory, which accumulated in the ultimate creation of a C3 Cunningham automobile. On the video right now, they're showing the wild and crazy Cadillac that he built for Le Mans. And if you go back to my YouTube video of the cars from Laguna Seca, the Le Mans celebration, I did actually videotape that exact car, which is pretty cool. All right, let's see. At the time, homologation rules of the Le Mans, of Le Mans specified that competitors could race production vehicles with at least 25 produced to be eligible to race. This would have been a problem for most, but for Briggs Cunningham, the solution was clear. He must build his own brand of car. Thus, the Cunningham C3 was born. All right, let's see. It, it originally used the Chrysler Hemi V8 engine with a race car chassis an Italian bodywork designed, uh, let's see, with exclusive, with ex exclusivity and a high price point, ranging between 8,000 and 12,000 when new wealthy Americans, such as the DuPont family and the Rockefeller family, took notice and were early customers. All right, got a commercial playing there. All right, by 1954, Briggs Cunningham was featured on the cover of Time Magazine with three of his Cunningham race cars as the embodiment of horsepower, endurance and sportsmanship so really cool really beautiful uh it's one of my favorite cars i believe they made a total of 31 with five of them being convertibles every car is known to exist and the owners are known if you talk to tom cotter a previous uh guest on the collector car podcast he could tell you where all of them are and i think he has one i can't remember if he has one or not but high performance american v8s with italian coach work with racing pedigree Really, what more is there to like? All right, the next one is a 1932 Duesenberg. Let's see. Uh, Jay has quite a few of these, so I didn't go in-depth and pull a description on this. The Duesenbergs, in my mind, are the most iconic and highest-performing uh, American classic pre-war car ever. Uh, they were all made in basically 1929, uh, but they were titled as 
when that when they sold. So you might have a 1931, you might have a 1930, might have a 1932. So like I said, Jay has I think seven or so. It's not always easy to identify the exact models of each because he doesn't have a video on each. The video that's being shown right now is this beautiful dark blue 1930 Duesenberg LeBaron barrel side. And uh, this is where you have a coach builder such as LeBaron build um, exactly what you want. Uh, you buy the chassis, running gear, and everything from uh, Duesenberg, and then you take it from there. So uh, per my conversation with Jacob Gorman last week um, for Hershey, uh, these could range in value today from like 800 grand for a Duesenberg four-door, you know, hardtop that is maybe okay looking, not from one of the better coach builders to $5 million, you know, same running gear, but maybe it's a two-door, um, you know, hidden top, uh, you know, a lot of different versions out there, which makes, which varies widely in value today for a Duesenberg. All right, the next one we're going to talk about is a 1953 Hudson Hornet sedan. So you might recognize, oh, I'm sorry, I actually missed the video on this one. So I'm going to keep playing uh, the Duesenberg video while I talk about the Hudson Hornet sedan. All right, this description is from RM Sotheby's. The Hudson Hornet is, let's see, the Hudson Hornet is likely the most famous of the historically significant step-down Hudson model designs. The car's chassis architecture and the way the hood was mounted on it meant that entering passengers stepped down modestly into the interior of the car, and this also allowed for lower center of gravity and improved road holding. This is one of the reasons the Hornet was such a successful car, especially in the early days of NASCAR racing. So if you've seen the movie Cars, you know Doc Hudson was a Hudson Hornet, and uh, that really brought it to prominence. Um, stay tuned uh, for a video from when I visited Las Vegas recently. I was in one of the Hollywood Cars museums, and they had a Hudson Hornet Doc Hollywood tribute car there next to a red, white, and blue uh, tomato uh, tow truck, which is pretty interesting. So really beautiful cars, high performance cars of the day. Uh, very cool. All right, let's see. The next one we're going to go to is 1958 Imperial Convertible. Now, this is, uh, again, a description from RM Sotheby's. I fell in love with these recently. I wasn't that familiar. There's a guy that shows up at a local Cars and Coffee. He has a four-door blue-on-blue one, unrestored and these cars were massively overbuilt for the day. Uh, super high quality. Uh, they were initially with Chrysler on the production line, but then they were pulled off onto their own kind of handmade uh, production line. And they were so overbuilt, you can hear this often in Jay Leno's video, that they were not allowed to participate in the demolition derbies in the 1970s because they were just so indestructible. Now, the one Jay has and he's talking about is a 1958 convertible, which is absolutely stunning. There's a local restoration shop that has one uh, just like this. It's white with, I think it had red interior. Absolutely stunning, absolutely beautiful. If I could have one of the big wing cars from the 50s, uh, this would be very high on the list as well as a 300. I think those are great. So this description from RMS. In the mid-1950s, a sea of change in marketing took place at Chrysler Corporation. What had long been the most expensive Chrysler model became, for model year 1955, simply Imperial, offering three body styles in two series. The, the separate badging was a direct challenge to Lincoln and Cadillac. For the next two years, Imperial was basically a long wheelbase Chrysler with a bolder grille, the latter appropriated from, from Chrysler's 
performance model, the 300. In 1957, however, Imperial was given a completely new personality. Its gun sight tail lamps incorporated into growing tail fins and curved side glass foretelling an industry trend. This year also marked the appearance of a faux spare tire embellishment on the tech lid, a device first seen on the virginal Exner designed and Gia built concept cars of 1952 to 1953. 1958 was the final year of the bigger is better philosophy in American automobiles as the flash Eisenhower recession limited sales and turned buyers' attention towards smaller models for the first time. Manufacturers were caught unaware as they had produced for this year the largest chrome-laden, most gadget-filled models seen on public highways. Nonetheless, Chrysler proudly heralded their new Imperial as having a new look of elegance to the finest expression of the forward look, sleek, low, glittering. A car of matchless good looks and good taste and quality. Chrysler's top-of-the-line Imperial now boasts quad headlamps, new circular parking lamps, and a simplified grille design as standard exterior equipment. The interior has been laden with luxury that includes well-tailored fittings accented by a padded dashboard and power accessories in, that form, in the form of the top six-way adjustable seats, windows, door locks, steerings, and brakes, all which is seen. Okay, uh, let's see. Under the hood was the vaunted, venerable 392 cubic inch Hemi V8 with 325 horsepower, which remained an outstanding performance engine. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, despite being uh, powerful, this would be the final season for the Hemi as it was too expensive to build for a profit in a time of sagging sales. All right, let's see. Just really, really beautiful model. These actually have been doing decent in the marketplace. I don't recall offhand what the market trends are, but we will find out at the end of this podcast. All right, the next one we're going to talk about is a 1966 Oldsmobile Tornado. Now, this is the one that is crazily heavily modified. So Jay's is not a factory one. I don't remember the specs of this one, but it's something like it's a twin turbo LS Corvette, crazy aluminum block engine. You know, it's rear wheel drive. It's over a thousand horsepower. Everything's been customized. The chassis, basically everything underneath is a Corvette. Even the wheels, they look like stock uh, Tornado wheels, but they're actually made out of like one piece billet aluminum. So Jay's is... You know, Jay's is like probably a million dollar car. They probably have a million dollar in it. Something crazy like that. Um, so this description from Haggerty is not for Jay's car. Sporty personal cars were all the rage by the early 1960s. And seeing first the Ford Thunderbird and then the Studebaker Avanti, Oldsmobile wanted one of their own. Their hopes were dashed by GM bean counters who nixed the idea of a smaller car. Persistence on the part of Olds did get GM approval for a personal car for the 1966 model year. But only, but on the e-body platform shared by the Buick Rivera, uh, Riviera, and Cadillac Eldorado. While it was a much larger car than they had hoped for, it would at least be packed with groundbreaking technology. Uh, on Jay's video, you can see they're talking about the flared fender and everything. So I, I have always thought these were really pretty attractive cars. It's funny that they were originally um, targeted to be smaller cars. Because uh, when you see one, they are definitely not, which explains the change made to the e-body platform. All right, the Tornado, as it became known, was the first American production car with front-wheel drive since the Accord 812 of 1937. And as an homage to that car, Olds designers loaded the 1966 Tornado with styling cues 
that were of, reminiscent of the Cord. Unlike European front-wheel drive cars like the BMC Mini and Citroën Avante, the wheels uh, doing the steering and the driving would also be transmitting a huge amount of horsepower and torque to the pavement. It had never been done before, and GM engineers tested the powertrain for over a million miles. The results worked so well that GM's popular line of motorhomes used a virtually unmodified version of the Toronado drivetrain. On the road test, testers noted that the Toro handed extremely well for a car of its size and that the big 425 cubic inch V8 combined with a relatively slippier, slippier shape gave it an extraordinary high top speed of 135 miles an hour. The Toronado is on most lists as a milestone car with solid engineering and fantastic styling. As of yet, though, it hasn't quite caught on. All right, next is Jay's 1955 Packard Caribbean Convertible. Now, Jay's is totally unrestored, which is pretty cool. All right, so for over 50 years, Packard had been one of America's top luxury car manufacturers and had held a status unprecedented among automobiles of the worldwide elite. Sadly, all that would end in the late 1950s. The company's prestigious low-production offering was the Caribbean Convertible of 1955 and 1956. This top-of-the-line model was completely redesigned for 1955, and at $5,932, the Caribbean was breathtaking in more ways than one. Perhaps unsurprisingly, a mere 500 examples were produced in 1955. All right, so Jay's talking about his. Uh, it's a beautiful white with, uh, I want to call it dark coral accents, even red. Maybe it is red. Um on the side as well as the uh, red interior um, very very beautiful it's he loves preservation cars so it's uh, fun to watch the videos uh, where he talks about that all right so next we're going to talk about this Cadillac now this one's been a little bit harder to identify it's a 1957 Cadillac I think it's a series 62 base I don't know that it's an Eldorado uh, Jay really doesn't go into it much um, and it is in part of his restoration blog so uh, this most recent restoration blog features it. Uh, what's interesting is the beginning of the blog, he talks about a Jaguar E-Type XKE that he had just found locally that's totally unrestored and original that they're bringing back to life. So if you're watching on YouTube, you can see it to the right of him right now. He's also talking about his Baker Electric that he's been working on, getting that up and running for like 10 years. So it's a beautiful, the Cadillac's a beautiful two-door um, kind of dark blue, uh, very beautiful. doesn't go into specifics about it. Uh, so this description is from Haggerty, and it is for a base, uh, a Series 62 base. With pesky competitor Packard all but dead, Lincoln having sold only a third of the number of Cadillacs in 1956, and with Imperial retailing less than a 15th the number of Cadillacs in 1956. Uh, let's see, GM's premier luxury division was on a roll with all-new 1957 cars on all-new X-Brace frames, sales were sure to continue in a similar vein. All Series 62 four-doors were now pillarless hardtops. The cars were two inches lower than 1956, with new reverse slanted wrapper and windshield and slightly longer 129.5-inch 129, wheelbase. Body styles include hardtop coupe, coupe de ville hardtop coupe, Eldorado Seville hardtop coupe, hardtop sedan, sedan de ville hardtop sedan, Eldorado Seville hardtop sedan, convertible coupe, and Eldorado Barretts convertible coupe. Prices range from $4,677 to $7,286 before taxes, and the engine remained 
365 cubic inches, but developed a full 300 horsepower. Now, once the final sales tally is what's complete for the 1957 model year, Cadillac had moved 3.5 times more cars than Lincoln and four times more cars than the all, than the all new flashy and low slung Imperial. All right, so Cadillac was the big winner. All right, so we have one more car we're going to talk about before we go into the, uh, let's see, before we go into the valuation trends. All right, so this last one is not really my cup of tea, but I thought I would bring it or mention it. So again, uh, the one Jay has is highly modified. It's pretty much a drag racer. <laughs> it's a 1955 Plymouth Duster Hemi. Uh, let's see, and for the valuation data and this description, uh, I don't believe they offered a Hemi that year. The 360, I believe, was the biggest engine. All right, uh, this goes back to when the model started. For the 1970 model year, Plymouth designers were tasked with muscling up the state that the stat stayed valiant the duster retained much of the valiance parts including the chassis and floor pan front end driving drivetrain suspension and more though it was a completely different car in most respects with a more steeply raked windshield and two-door fastback roof roof line let's see initially came in for power plants let's see uh let's see for 1972 horsepower fell across the range as Plymouth adopted the SAE net standard while also reducing compression on the, the Duster. As a result, the Duster 340s were now rated at 200 horsepower. The Dodge dropped the 196 cubic inch slant six, and the Twister models lost their special hoods and grills. That sounds sad. So big news for 1974 was re the replacement of the popular 340 V8 with a 360 V8, while the 1975 included another restyled grill plus another new trim, the Feather Duster. That doesn't sound like a performance model, which included the, okay, it wasn't, 225 cubic inch slant six incorporated uh, light aluminum parts for reduced overall weight. The car was rated at an impressive 24 miles per gallon in the city and 36 miles per gallon on the highway. In its final year, power dropped again across the range with the Duster 360 now developing 220 horsepower. After more than 1.3 million dusters had been sold, the car was discontinued, though the duster name would live on su subsequent cars like the Volare and Sundance. All right, so the video that's being shown was a brief video of the previous owner uh, as he uh, basically you know, hot-rodded this duster up and made it into a drag car. So I'm going to let that run if you're joining us on the YouTube channel while I talk about the valuation data. All right, I'm just going to go through... Uh, I guess pretty much all of these because they all seem to have some uh, some results here. All right, so let's see, 1955 Buick Roadmaster, one-year change up 10%. Three-year change up 36.1%. That's strong. Let's see, the 36 Cord, no change, one year or three year. It's been flat. The uh, Cunningham C3, the 1953 Cunningham, up 3.8, latest one year, latest three years. The Duesenberg SJ Convertible, up 8.6%, latest one year, latest three years. Uh, let's see, 1953 Hudson Hornet Sedan, flat, both one and three years. The Imperial Convertible, this is interesting, latest one year flat, latest three years, actually down 10.6%. The 1966 Oldsmobile Toronado, this one's interesting again, latest one year up 20.7%, latest three years up 25.4%. The 1955 Packard Caribbean, 
Uh, let's see, latest one year is flat. Latest three years actually down 13.6%. The Cadillac, uh, 1957 Cadillac. I, this is for the Eldorado Seville. I wasn't quite sure which car to pick. Latest one year up 27.2%. Latest three years up 25%. And finally, for the 1955, I'm sorry, 1975 Plymouth Duster. This is a base 360 car, not the Hemi. Uh, latest one year is flat. Latest three year is up 7%. So that is it. That's uh, my coverage for Jay Leno's American Classics. As always, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. And I will talk to all of you next week. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast. <laughs>